Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your host, Jacob Asida, your friendly neighborhood cyberman, and I'm joined as always with his dearest wonk friend, Dayton Williams. Good to see you, Jacob. Good to see you as well. So today's episode is about the interesting intersection between national security and critical infrastructure. Specifically, we'll be looking into the vulnerabilities of our power grid with everything from nuclear reactors to electrical substations. Like blood to the body, a modern society needs electricity to pump through its veins and make it go. Controlling that industrial and economic life force is critical to public safety and independence. We'll be talking about what makes these power systems tick and what professionals look for to protect and infiltrate this critical infrastructure. Continuing a trend from last week's episode, we begin with everyone's favorite cyber actor, Russia. Earlier this month, the United States accused Russia of engineering a series of cyber attacks targeting American and European nuclear plants, as well as water and electric systems. The United States Computer Energy Readiness Team described the attack as a multi-stage cyber intrusion campaign where Russian cyber actors conducted spear phishing to gain remote access to targeted industrial networks. After gaining access, Russian hackers collected information and created a foothold which could allow the hackers to shut down our electrical grid. Yeah, really scary. The Russian campaign is classified as an APT, or an Advanced Persistent Threat. This means that the positioning of Russian hackers in American electrical infrastructure has been building slowly for years lying mostly dormant. American officials and security firms like Symantec and CrowdStrike believe that Russian attacks on the Ukrainian power grid in 2015 and 2016 that left more than 200,000 citizens in the dark is an ominous sign of what a Russian cyber attack may look like in the States. Targeting critical infrastructure over a computer is nothing new. Unsurprisingly, cyber weapons infiltrate important networks have always been championed by covert military operations, as well as just something that is added on in regular military operations. From a military perspective, the potential of a campaign to non-lethally disable military targets without bombing seems to be a sophisticated answer to a hazardous history of warfare, potentially removing explosives from the equation. The advent of a cyber war against critical infrastructure seems to be a blessing. In 2010, the United States and Israel famously introduced the computer worm Stuxnet into an Iranian nuclear facility in Natanz. The worm succeeded in destroying up to 1,000 of the 6,000 uranium-enriched centrifuges, pushing back production by years. As a contrast, prior to a cyber weapon akin to Stuxnet, Israel led an airstrike in 2008 bombing a partly constructed nuclear reactor in Syria in a similar attempt to slow down nuclear development. The strike killed 10 North Korean technicians who were supposedly assisting the project. Although both cases sought to deter the development of nuclear arsenal, Stuxnet, however, non-lethally stunted production and accomplished the political objective without bloodshed. The Internet's ability to instantly share dangerous information to all classes of malicious actors makes the threat all that more pressing. Cyber attacking can be more of a humane alternative to outright kinetic warfare, but this does not mean that technology should be used haphazardly. The internet's ability to instantly share dangerous information to all classes of malicious actors makes the threat all that more pressing. Right. For example, the code found in Stuxnet may have delayed Iranian nuclear ambitions, but it also may have knocked down an Indian satellite that shared a Siemens operating system akin to the ones found in the TANS. Of course, a communications satellite is a benign casualty for Stuxnet. However, what if a civilian hospital lost power to its ICU? or perhaps a nuclear facility was pushed towards catastrophic meltdown. Like any tactic, there is a potential for abuse. What do these infrastructure cyber attacks look like? 
Although their implementation and results vary, all cyberattacks rely on access to an exploitable vulnerability. It could be a technical vulnerability or a human one. In the Russian case, hackers sent emails and doctored online resources to gain access to power stations. The first publicly recorded cyber attack on infrastructure was a CIA operation which targeted the vulnerable SCADA systems of a Soviet natural gas pipeline in 1982. SCADA systems, or Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition Systems, are one of the most common computing architectures which govern decentralized infrastructure facilities. In other words, they make power stations work. They're programmed to be easy to use and repaired by civilians, but they're not hardened to infiltration. This creates the perfect environment for hijacking. In the 80s, the CIA tampered with software which KGB agents stole from a Canadian firm to use in the Soviet Union. Using a logic bomb, the CIA sabotaged the pipeline software where it slowly adjusted pipe speeds and pressures, resulting in a monumental three kiloton explosion. The potential for devastating attacks is nowhere more apparent than in the area of cyber critical infrastructure attacks. This is an area where you hear of the sci-fi-esque doomsday sort of events, such as shutting down power grids, disabling communication systems, or setting the value of a dollar to zero. To talk about this more, we're going to be talking about critical infrastructure security with our guest this week. Uh, my name is Wyatt Hoffman, so I'm a research analyst at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace with the Cyber Policy Initiative and the Nuclear Policy Program. Um, I recently completed my master's degree in war studies from King's College London. Uh, and prior to that, I was here at Carnegie as well as a uh, project manager for the Nuclear Policy Program. Um, I guess just a brief uh, a bit on the kind of issues that I focus on. Um, they, they include uh, the the private sector's role in cybersecurity, sort of writ large, and some of these uh, fundamental dilemmas for cybersecurity and, and state policy and strategy, including the development of norms and cyber conflict, and those are kind of some of the issues that we focus on here. Well, excellent. Thank you for uh, thank you for appearing. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, we definitely appreciate your time, Wyatt. So uh, first up, we'll just get started at it. Uh, what sort of threats are facing critical infrastructure? you know, sort of like the types of attacks and exploitations being used at the moment? So I'll kind of broaden the scope to focus on some of the broader trends here um, and then maybe give some examples that kind of illustrate some of these trends, I think. So one trend is the expanding attack surface. And so this is driven by uh, critical infrastructure and, and the private sector more generally, adopting Internet of Things and the industrial Internet of Things uh, remote access, so you'll have um, utilities uh, using VPNs, you know, to connect in, uh, and the the increasing intersection between IT and OT, and so information technology and operational technology. And this is important because these these two cultures are very different. And so operational technology is, is includes industrial control systems and all of these sort of older uh, uh, systems that were developed to run machinery and industrial processes. And these were designed to, pri primarily, not with security in mind, they were designed to be functional and they were designed to improve efficiency uh, and keep, uh, keep, keep things up and running and, and prioritize safety. And that's very different from information technology, which uh, prioritizes constantly updating and, and adapting to new threats and things like that. Right, you have these sort of different priorities going on where with uh, OT, you have this getting always online, making sure your service is yeah. always being provided and mm -hmm. any downtime is significantly damaging. Yeah. And I think, so that that's sort of this expanding attack surface. And what we're seeing are uh, 
first, increasingly sophisticated attacks that are leveraging these new attack vectors. And so that includes several attacks that are actually, that have been tailored toward industrial control systems. Uh, and that includes the attacks on Ukraine's electric grid in mm -hmm. December 2015 and 2016, uh, black energy and crash override. And these, these attacks, in contrast to a simple cyber attack that's simply accessing a network and exfiltrating data, these attacks would actually manipulate the processes of these industrial control systems in ways that shut down the electric grid and, and denied uh, power to hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians for hours at a time. Yeah, these are those sci-fi nightmares made real. Yeah, right. exactly. It's sort of a proof of concept of some of, the, um, some of the things that we've been worried about for a long time now. Could you provide an example of what that would look like? You mentioned the SCADA systems and how uh, they've been compromised in a way. What are some of these tangible ways that uh, systems have been knocked out? So I think actually a really useful example is Stuxnet because that's, it's one of the ones that we know the most about because right. it's, it's happened a number of years ago and so part of it's just having had time to review it. And if you look at what Stuxnet did, so you know the, the basic components of a cyber attack, you have the propagation method, uh, the, the exploits, and the payload. And Stuxnet used a number of propagation methods. It, it was able to jump air gaps. So even these nuclear facilities that were um, isolated from the global internet were, mm -hmm. were, accessed through, were accessed through the propagation methods it employed. Uh, it used four zero-day vulnerabilities, which was, you know, sort of unprecedented and uh, in incredibly resource-intensive. And the payload, I think, is the most interesting because what it did was Stuxnet first uh, recorded the normal functioning of the industrial control systems, basically these programmable logic controllers that controlled Iranian centrifuges. Um, it recorded normal activities so that it established basically a, a baseline of normal behavior. And then it subtly took, subtly took control of the centrifuges to increase and decrease the rotational speed in ways that caused them to slowly damage and caused, uh, caused stress upon the centrifuges to the point where they eventually broke down. And at the same time, it was sending false feedback back to the safety control systems and the operators saying that things were running normally. And so this, this made it a really uh, uh, subtle a really insidious attack in that it was able to cause physical damage yet send false feedback uh, back to the operators. So some of the more recent attacks that we've seen have actually taken some of these features of Stuxnet and sort of applied them toward, toward new purposes. And so one of the most recent ones was a piece of malware called Triton, which targeted uh, oil and gas utility providers in the Middle East primarily. And Triton, while it, it didn't reach the point where it actually executed a malicious payload, it did record, it did conduct network reconnaissance and record the activities of uh, targeting specifically industrial control systems. And so the people that studied it speculate that it similarly was possibly a prelude to uh, a Stuxnet-like attack targeting those industrial control systems. I think this goes into saying like the scale of these attacks has to really, it really shows the intensity of the knowledge that goes behind these attacks. It's not just some hacker. You have to know the infrastructure itself. You need to know how nuclear facilities work to even begin to. Mm -hmm. So the actors are kind of limited and who have this scope, who have all of this technical knowledge that isn't just hacking. Yeah, I think there are, the best way to describe it, I think, is, is several different trends. So one trend is the increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks. And it still looks like there's a relatively high barrier to entry in, in being able to conduct these, as you're alluding to. 
But there's another worrisome trend, which is the increasing ease of certain propagation methods and exploits. Uh, so part of this is you have new ways to automate certain features of cyber attacks. So you have things like Metasploit that automate the uh, selection of, of exploits and, and can you know take these modular sort of components of cyber attacks and put them together. Shodan is similar to, similarly a tool that is sort of a search engine for internet connected devices. And you also have the uh, the sophisticated payloads being spread through Stuxnet, among other attacks. You know, every, every time this, every time a new attack is sort of enters into the wild, parts of it can be reverse engineered and, and reapplied to new contexts. And so, while the capabilities to conduct very high end, sophisticated operations targeting industrial control systems still require extensive reconnaissance and extensive resources. Uh, and Stuxnet, in many ways, demonstrates simply how hard it is rather than how easy it is to conduct a cyber attack. But at the same time, the barriers to entry for these sort of low-level disruptive or even some attacks that could cause damage seem to be lowering. And so you, we, we kind of have to deal with these uh, these countervailing trends. Going off of what Jacob said about the increase in scope of uh, targeting critical infrastructure, one of the things that's unique about critical in infrastructure, at least in the United States, is how private and corporate it's become. So, Wyatt, I wanted to ask you, um, what role does the private sector have in protecting critical infrastructure? That's a really important question. Um, and as you allude to, I think somewhere around 90% of critical infrastructure in the United States is, is privately owned. And this trend of increasing internet connectivity is largely driven by the private sector. It's driven by efficiency and convenience. Uh, because these are private companies. And so ultimately you have a situation where the risks that are being generated are, are largely being driven by the private sector. Uh, it's, it's different in some other countries that, that don't have quite the same ecosystem that we have. But because of this, you have a situation where somewhere around 30 to 40% of SCADA systems, uh, 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 industrial control systems, and, and SCADA systems being a certain kind of that, are internet connected. And that's actually much higher than, for instance, Russia, where something like three to five percent of, of SCADA systems are connected to the mm, internet because they've mm. been much more cautious and conservative, and they have a much he heavier regula regulatory hand over their uh, agencies. And so, the private sector is really going to be where security, uh, where security succeeds or fails, and that's that's kind of the starting point that we need to think about. And I, I think this gets to a really more fundamental question, which is how we define critical infrastructure. Uh, and I'm sure this was coming up at some point. At, oh, of course. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I guess we, we can go ahead and get into this now if you want. But um, So obviously the, the, the U.S. defines 16 different categories of critical infrastructure. Right. And they include some of the ones that you typically think of, like the energy grid and transportation and healthcare. Uh, but they also include some that you don't typically think about. The financial sector. The financial sector. Um, commercial or facilities. Voting systems, I think, was discussed. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's actually been added as a separate category. Mm -hmm. or it might fall under the category that already existed for government facilities. I, I right, don't actually right. know how voting systems are, are categorized. But uh, I think one of the problems is we've taken this approach that's very sector-centric in a sense that the debate's largely been about which sectors do we include and which do we exclude from this definition. And because of that, we've ended up having this very sweeping category of critical infrastructure that includes things like Sony. Uh, it came out after the, the Sony hack that Sony mm -hmm. was technically part of critical infrastructure. It's included under uh, 
com it's, it's included in the broad category of commercial and, and public facilities, uh, entertainment studios, I guess. Right. I, I kind of think that the approach that we need needs to focus more on what are the essential services and functions that are critical to our economy, to public safety, to basically the, the general functioning of our state. And there may be cases where within a particular industry, within a particular company, there are things that aren't critical, but that are critical. And, and if we simply have this broad category of this, you know, this whole sector is critical infrastructure, it doesn't really help us prioritize what needs to be defended and what we can leave to the market to figure out uh, or, or to drive security standards for. I certainly agree. Uh, I spent some time actually working in the financial sector for critical infrastructure, and we had within that sector critical sort of you know areas of that sector. You know, yeah. so there's specifications within specifications in in these areas of critical infrastructure in these specific sectors, like fi the financial sector or the energy sector. Uh, what what is the thing that really guides like harmonized rules and policies? So it, it kind of depends on which sector you're talking about because they vary in terms of how they're regulated. And so there are some, for instance, the nuclear sector uh, that are very heavily regulated because of the obvious safety and, and security concerns. Uh, and then there are others like the, the financial sector, which, as you know, because there are, there are so many more players involved and uh, a diverse range of players in terms of you have the exchanges and clearinghouses, you have banks and you have credit card agencies and all these different players – uh, they're regulated in different ways and, and by sometimes overlapping uh, jurisdictions and and sometimes they're driven much more by market mechanisms uh, than anything else. And so I, I think when we think about how to define critical infrastructure, we need to think about what imperatives flow from that definition. So if we're going to call something critical infrastructure, what does that mean in terms of we're identifying this as something that the government has to regulate or that the government has to set minimum standards for? Uh, or is critical infrastructure something that the government is going to undertake defensive in a comprehensive way? Because that's that's sort of what we've suggested in, in the way that we define critical infrastructure, but it's not really the case. The government hasn't undertaken defensive of all of these things that it, it counts as critical infrastructure. And so I think when we're thinking about, you know, how, this, this term needs to be useful. It needs to have some sort of imperative that guides policymakers uh, if we're if if the term critical infrastructure is going to be useful for for improving cybersecurity, mm -hmm. I think that's fair. I mean, you have to make some sort of differentiation yeah. between something like you know in the financial sector, you have to make a differentiation between like Venmo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's part yeah. of it, but you know, does it deserve that much resources dedicated to defending it? And and we need to set priorities, frankly, because uh, something like Sony, uh, while it, it it may be an important company and it may be important to the economy isn't something that underpins public safety in the same way that, you know, the energy grid does. And so we need to think about, you know, what, what are the priorities? What are the critical services and, and functions that we need to protect? And what are all the things that underpin those services and functions? And we may find that there are certain things like the transportation grid and the energy grid that because they underpin other aspects of critical infrastructure become the most critical priorities and sort of es elevate uh, elevate their position in our uh, standards and our regulatory. So would you say that the it's clear like the U.S. has an interest in this area? Do you think that the U.S. has, the U.S. government has has in its mind a sense of what its role is going to be or like a clear-cut idea of that? Or do you think that's something we're still kind of defining? Uh, it Well, the, the I think part of it is... You know, when you say the U.S. government, it's, it's not yeah. this kind of just singular entity. Certainly not. Um, I mean, I think 
these different agencies like DHS in particular are, are have have made a lot of progress in, in different initiatives and different functions that they're serving. So, for instance, DHS has made a lot of progress in their information sharing, and they have a number of different mechanisms that are in place that help share information on cyber threats with the private sector. And so that's something where there's been a clear identification that this is a role that the government should play, and they've clearly stepped up to play that role. There are other areas where it's more ambiguous and it's not entirely clear. Uh, and, and I think, you know, some of the major incidents like Sony have illustrated this point because it wasn't immediately obvious who was responsible for defending Sony and, and how we and how we responded to that was sort of this learn. There was a clear learning process that that was at play there. And so I think, you know, within particular uh, agencies and, and in certain areas, um, and, and NIST being NIST being another good example of, of something the National Institute for Standards and Technology has done a lot of work on creating this sort of baseline cybersecurity framework that that serves as kind of a uh, a common assessment of of here's here are smart things to do to protect yourself. Um, so that's another case where the government has a very uh, productive role that they play. Um, but again, it gets back to this, you know, definition of critical infrastructure. It's that that's a definition that has imperatives not just for, um, you know, who DHS protects, but it has imperatives for cyber risk and who's responsible for it. Um, has imperatives for how you know uh, financial regulators approach things and and re reporting requirements to the SEC and all these other areas that that kind of need to be thought through. Going back to the Russia story, the Russian hacking of critical infrastructure began with phishing and illegitimate websites to gain credentials. But who they gained these from was mainly from private sources. As we've already pointed out, most of the industry is led by private firms. These were then used as a jumping off points to attack the, public, uh, the publicly run nuclear facilities. This raises concerns about the integration between the public and private sector and what sort of interrelations they're going to have to have in order to improve things in the future. Right, and it really hints at the melting together of different industries and the melting together of different sectors when it comes to something like cybersecurity. The way industry is going, the way government is going, it impacts everything. Everything that you do in some way or another can be affected by something like critical infrastructure being compromised. Right, it's not an isolated domain like where someone breaches into a database and steals information such as your social security number. Rather, it's much more tangible. It's somebody literally turning off the lights as you were doing earlier. Right, right. It definitely bridges that gap between something immaterial and something material. Something that Wyatt said that really resonated with me was the way he approached the solutions and how he's incorporating political, economic, private best practices, different ways of thinking at different problems and incorporating that into a greater approach towards cyber problems. I think people have the opinion that cybersecurity and technology is so esoteric and so new that we have to apply new entire formulas. We have to reinvent the wheel here. But at the end of the day, what's behind all of it is people, at least right. until we all get replaced by, you know, computers. Yeah, yeah. And then, then there'll just be a Stephen Hawking-esque voice on the, behind these microphones for you, dear listener. <laughs> but who designs the computers? There's the question. Oh, yeah. Still people. So they're still, still going to have some aspect of people. You're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. Now, this all may sound like a bad episode of Black Mirror and that the future and the apocalypse is now. But it, it's not. 
The fact of the matter is, this is just the way life kind of is now. We have to understand that we're living in this integrated world where computers make up our infrastructure and computers are vulnerable. Ultimately, what we want to impress on you is the idea of where your risk and liabilities lie in this more interconnected technological world. Right, and that means protecting your identity when you can. That means using good cyber hygiene and changing your passwords regularly and watching who you email and what emails you respond to. But it also means understanding the vulnerabilities in the products they're using. As we mentioned, technically, Venmo is part of the financial sector's infrastructure. The rules and regulations and the practices of these private companies ends up determining what is going to be secure. And you should understand where you're putting yourself at risk, even if they're not telling you where that is. And we're not saying to delete Venmo or delete Facebook or get rid of your banking app on your phone. You should just be aware that these are points of access. As, as Wyatt mentioned earlier, we have a larger point of access uh, for vulnerability than we've ever had in our history. And it's important to know and realize those risks and act accordingly. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorp program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.